From the Samira Foundation, this is Demystifying NMO and MOG, where we bring together the world's foremost experts, the doctors dedicated to studying it, and the patients who live with it every day. With support from Genetech. Hi everyone, this is Chelsea Judge. I'm excited to be back on Demystifying NMO Season 3. Today I'm really excited to talk about the topic of health literacy. This is so important. And I'm joined by Brian Dawson, MLIS. If you don't know what those acronyms stand for, it's a master in library and information services. And who better than a librarian who specializes in information and organization um, that to talk about health literacy and how to navigate it? So Brian, I'm really happy to talk with you on this really important topic today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Great. So first things first, why should I talk about this um, as well? So my background, PhD immunology, and I'm very passionate about finding objective truth in everything um, and how to navigate that and applying critical thinking skills. I'm also super passionate having a brother with NMO. And Brian, you obviously are personally um, passionate about this topic as well. So um, when you think of health literacy, what does that even mean? What is the definition of it? It's one of those things. If I wasn't a librarian, I don't know how I would think about it. Um, if I would think about it, if I would even know what it is. Um, but as someone who has a career in information sciences, it, it, it's really a pretty complex issue. Um, so when I think of, of health literacy, um, the basic definition of it is is essentially the ability to to uh, to get to and access, process, and understand basic information about health and being able to take that information to make the appropriate health decisions for yourself or someone that um, that you're advocating for. And so there's a couple different kinds. So the first one and the one most people think about is just personal health literacy. Mm-hmm. It's really a lot more than just reading. Um, it's it. There's uh, different skills that go into it and you need varying levels of some proficiency, being able to, to read and understand basic information. Um, math skills become important, especially when you're talking about medications and things like that. Basic knowledge of biology. Um, an- another one that is kind of more of a modern issue is really media literacy and being able to to understand and communicate and use different formats, whether it's print materials or video or getting onto the internet, which ties into your digital literacy. Uh, you know, just being able to to access the internet, being able to use a computer and things of that nature. And then there's that that cultural and um, language aspect of it. Uh, you know, you're dealing with, with diverse populations when you go to the hospital, people from all over the world, and they bring with them their own um, influences of culture as well as your own. And so it all comes together. And, and those are the things that we use to, to start to make decisions about many things, including your healthcare. And so, so that's the, the, the basics of, of health literacy in, in terms of what it is and, and how I see it. Thank you. I think that that was really well said. And I think it's really important you added all in um, the degrees or the layers of health literacy, right? When you hear the word literacy, um, you probably just think reading, but you emphasize, no, it's so much more than just reading. And I think that that's really important. 
Um, so another big thing that I think that you pointed out again, all the different forms or like layers that are involved within health literacy, um, including media. And I expect like social media is another huge player in that and how you discern what's what's true and what's not. So I think we're already getting into the heart of why is health literacy important? Um, I think, you know, intuitively, right, your ability to uh, to discern um what's quality information, what is true, what is important to apply critical thinking skills, um, to use your background knowledge as you emphasized, and then to apply it to your health or your loved one's health. I mean, that feels intuitively very important, but what are what are your more um, thoughts on that? Yeah, that's exactly right. When you're talking about the impact that health literacy can have on you, the internet's really made the world a lot smaller um, and increase our ability to be able to kind of share and access information. And it's given us the ability to, to really find small enclaves of populations of, of people that are like, that are like me or like you, um, you know, people talk about being able to find their tribe and that's mm-hmm. one of the blessings. And also to a degree, one of the curses of the internet and having access to so much information. So people with, with rare diseases, they really have a chance to better understand health issues um, that affect them, but also their entire community. Because for someone with a rare disease, community becomes so important. It's really critical having those people who understand the exact challenges that that you're going through. And we know that there are factors that that kind of impact a person's literacy skills. You're looking at a person's education. You know, mm-hmm. I mentioned uh, a little bit about you know the digital divide and their ability to access information in the digital world. Um, the socioeconomic class, language barriers, you know, these are all things that kind of add into it. And when we look at uh, some of the problems, we can see you know, s- some really sobering numbers. So like I, I pulled some statistics on it, um, just looking at, at people's information behaviors. And most of this comes from some Pew research. So, so it is very well vetted and analyzed and just solid information. But 72% of adults um, who use the internet have searched for information about health issues, specific diseases and treatments. That was like the number one subject within the the realm of health searches, health information searches. Eight out of 10 of those start with a general search engine. And when you consider that when you do a um, a Google search or a Yahoo search or or whatever search engine you're using, you're seeing results based on algorithms that are influenced by a number of factors that are that can be manipulated mm-hmm. and or just bought. You can buy your way up to being at the top of, of search results. Um, it happens all the time. It's an accepted business practice. Um, and oftentimes we don't necessarily think about that. You know, another thing that I that I was looking at was that less than 25% of people who are pulling information check the date of of when that information was published or verify the credibility of the resources. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really kind of stunning when you think about it. And I think the last one that was really interesting was that um, 16% of people go online to find others who share those same health concerns, which is, you know, that, that that's how I found the Samira foundation. So that one really kind of hit home to me. And, and I was surprised that it was that it was as low as it was at 16%. And keeping in mind that all of these numbers, those are just the numbers that represent the behaviors of 
people in a modern industrialized country. This is what the people in the United States do. So you have to think about access to free information. When I say free information, there's not a um, paywall. uh, There's not a paywall. Uh, There's not necessarily a government body who Mm -hmm. is permitting certain results to be returned or uh, disseminated with to their population within their political boundaries. So it's it's really kind of kind of scary when you think about it in that way. And with health literacy, uh, the risks of it are 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 really powerful. There was a, a study that was done that nine out of ten people actually lack the skills they need to manage their health and their diseases just based upon being able to understand the information. Uh, 14% of people have below basic health literacy. And, and, and it's really kind of scary to think not being able to, to have an active voice and participate in a conversation with your healthcare team to, to really make decisions about what's going to happen to you and to your health or to the health of um, and the outcomes of your kids. And these folks, um, they, they, they really end up having uh, some of the poorest health outcomes that we can find. Mm-hmm. They they go to the emergency room more frequently. Uh, they they have more stays in in the hospital and in term um, care facilities. Uh, they're they're not able to follow their treatment plans. They're being discharged from the hospital with pages of instructions. You know, take this medication, see the specialist, etc. It can be hard to keep it all straight and and follow the instructions. So whether they're unable to comprehend. Uh, the severity of things, or they're just overwhelmed with the logistics. They can't overcome the obstacles to getting the care that they need. And all of these factors just lead to a higher mortality rate. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And so, of course, with all these things, that really increases the healthcare costs, which affects everybody else. Yes. And, and we also know that people with chronic illness, you know, within our community, we're even more likely to use the internet to go out and find resources. And it really makes it critical. Um, that we're able to find good, reliable resources. I had recently um, been doing some reading and someone had made the point, and it's something that I had never considered before, but that these health literacy skills, they're they're fluid and it's really situational. Um, so, you know, you have to consider things like how stress or, or pain impacts a person's ability to process information and understand that information. So you think of someone who just received a terminal diagnosis. I know when when I was diagnosed with NMO, when they said those words to me, um, it was early in the morning. I was by myself. I was in a lot of discomfort. Um, and, you know, I I heard the words, but it really wasn't processing. Um, it was really, you know, it, it was a gut punch. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I can't imagine, you know, receiving a, a, a terminal diagnosis or, um, you know, if you're in a lot of pain, you were just in a car wreck and you have a traumatic injury. And now here's a, here's a doctor or someone telling you, you know, Hey, this is, these are your options. We can send you into surgery. We can do this. We can do this. How much of that are you really able to, to kind of process or even people, um, who were on certain types of medications that, you know, a lot of us laugh about having brain fog. So, so how are we really how well are we processing information um, to make good decisions? Yeah. And I think you make, I love all of your data-driven points and then you're weaving it into personal experiences and um, how situational all of this is. And 
I have seen in my personal life, I would say two, two based on all of everything you're saying, like two extremes of this or two different uh, situations. So with my brother, when he was diagnosed, right, this is an incredibly traumatic situation, as you highlighted. Um, in his case, when he was diagnosed with NMO, he was temporarily blind. Um, he was paralyzed. How he literally could not be able to read in order to process and absorb information. And like you're saying, um, you know, all of his uh, like fight or flight modes are like fully activated in that moment so that he can just get through that very traumatic situation. And so he really relied on his the clinical care team, which are people he did not know until he's there in that traumatic situation, um, yeah. as well as well as his family and friends. And we're only right. You don't, you don't pick your family and friends based off of their ability, you know, to be able to process and absorb information for their expertise. And I just so happened to be doing my PhD in immunology at the time. So he really relied on me in order to like ask the appropriate questions, absorb the information, help work again with the clinical care team. Cause it's, I think always gets into this uh, shared decision-making mm -hmm. and the importance of trust. Like how can you trust the information? Who is giving you the information? Um, you know what I mean? What are their motives, et cetera, in order to make the best informed decision with him? And so I would say while it was an incredibly traumatic situation, it was also some of the best situational case uh, scenario where he had a high level of trust in, I would say, like, maybe, uh, you know, those who are helping to make his shared decisions, because again, he trusted me as his sister and my background, as well as the clinicians that he worked with, because he had a slight window into that world. Right. In the case of my husband, when he was diagnosed with MS, just same as you, right? Like he's alone. I think maybe his mother was there, but uh, he's really young. He was 19, 20 years old. He has no biology background. No one in his family has any sort of scientific or uh, medical background. And he didn't know that doctor and he's in the, is he said, it's kind of like, um, Charlie Brown mode, like where someone's talking to you on the phone. It's like, wah, 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 exactly. yeah. Um, and now he's supposed to absorb this information. And he was, you know, told out his diagnosis that like, what do you want me to tell you? You're special. You're not special. You have classic MS mm -hmm. and then thrown a bunch of pamphlets to make a treatment decision. Well, again, he, he and his family have no background in science or medicine, He's in trauma right now in this moment. And now it doesn't seem like he's really going to trust that person who's presenting him with this information because right there, their communication style is not really resonating with them. And so that was a sort of a worst case scenario where there was no trust in the you know medical establishment and who was giving them the information. They have no background. And so ultimately, you know, he became really disenchanted with the medical establishment and navigating health literacy and went un untreated, undertreated, and um, you know, kind of down like the rabbit hole of the internet and misinformation um for half a decade and you know, had really negative consequences on his health, but it's not that's like the whole system as opposed to like, you know, like being an individual responsibility. Right. And right. yeah, it's just the, very, the, the data you highlighted all of the data and then here are the really real personal consequences of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's um, kind of gets into the topic of, you know, so, so what are we supposed to do? Um, mm -hmm. And initially on, on the consumer side, um, so to say on the patient side, there was an initiative um, um, a, few, a few years ago, um, and they kind of came up with, with uh, I think it's three questions that 
a patient or a caregiver or a patient advocate can ask to build some clarity and build some dialogue with with the care team. Um, so the first first question is straight out: just what is my main problem? This way, there there's no kind of dancing around, or we, it just let, let's state what the problem is right up front. The second question is: what do I need to do? So specifically, lay it out for me. Let me know exactly what I need to do and help me understand. And the third thing is, third question is, why is it important for me to do this? Mm-hmm. Uh, they may be throwing out three or four um, treatment plans or options and saying, okay, pick which one. Like you were saying, hey, these these are your choices. What do you want to do here? So it, it's important for someone, for that care provider, that that doctor to be like, okay, this is what you have. These are the things that you are personally going to have to do as the patient or as the caregiver. And this is why it's important that we do those things. And it should be we do those things because it really needs to be a team effort. It's not strictly on the doctor. The the doctor's well, gonna do that, yeah. You know, the doctor's gonna do their part and, and the best that they can, but it's also on the patient that you're going to have to make sure that you're taking your medication regularly. You're you're keeping your appointments, you're going for the tests that you know, the doctor wants to see and things like that, which can be can be very difficult. I mean, that's a whole nother thing. But the the patient and the patient care team needs to... I think what I'm hearing is advocate for themselves, right? Like it's a, exactly. you're, taking, you're taking an active <laughs> role in your, in your health journey. Exactly, exactly. And so... The, the other side of that is is the healthcare provider. And that's where uh, the other type of health literacy comes in and the organizational side mm-hmm. of it. Personally, I think I think it's important for the healthcare provider. They, they are really going to carry um, a lot of responsibility in communicating mm-hmm. that and, and what needs to get done. Uh, so, for example, like the average adult reads on like an eighth grade level, but yet most medical information that's put out for general public consumption is written on a college level. So, wow. I mean, right there, there's such a major disconnect in in how we're doing things. You uh, need to meet people where they are and also apply it in a compassionate way. And it seems like that's um, overall not being implemented. Exactly. And for provider and organizations, I mean, there's a number of resources out there to help them provide information that's more consumable for, for the patient, for, for, for the layperson. That's that can be an entirely different episode. Some of the, the quick things is um, using like uh, the, a, the bluff model of, of thing. Bottom line, upfront, get the information that's really critical, important, early into the conversation. Once you hear that news, you you start to get lost in yourself. Right, right, right. And I can see then. I mean, it's making it even. Uh, I think it can make even more sense to me where if you have a person who has limited, you know, background or education on like a health medicine science uh, level um, and they're in a traumatic moment and then information is not being explained to them at their level. And then they go on the internet and there's like, it's misinformation, but it's explained relatively simply and it feels intuitive. Um, and you have that Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Which is that people yes. who have kind of knowledge or um, in a specific topic, they overestimate what they know, right? They learn a little bit and think that they quote, know everything or know a lot. And so if you apply that effect to, okay, like the the actual good quality information is not resonating. It's it's too over their heads. And then at the same time, this misinformation is explaining it to them in a simple way. Then 
I see how people go down these rabbit holes and we have to have compassion for that. The organizational health literacy needs to come in and intervene and do its part. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. Um, I had just finished reading Invisible Kingdom by a fantastic book. And she talks about her journey towards finding a diagnosis. And she's very upfront about it was such a challenge to find answers. And she talks about how a lot of people with chronic illness and rare diseases kind of they're 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 looking for answers and so when you're when you're not finding those you just keep digging and digging and going further and kind of Mm -hmm. pushing the edge of um what you know and what you understand and a lot of people do transition from traditional medicine to alternative medicine which isn't necessarily a bad thing at all right right. Um, and i i think that we should you know have another whole topic on what is that word what is alternative or what is integrative or complementary exactly yeah so it's that's a perfect thing to talk about on this how do but how do we how do we the overall uh you know, chronic illness community or anyone trying to take a more informed, active role in their healthcare, navigate what is quality information from misinformation. I always like to use the acronym CRAP. Um, it's kind of an older one uh, for with information literacy. And so when you're evaluating something, um, CRAP, currency, relevancy, authority, accuracy, and purpose. So basically, if you find a resource, when was it published? The last thing you want is like your orthopedic surgeon's most recent reference book to be like Civil War battlefield surgery. <laughs> How much re- What is this really the latest research and information that's out there? Um, the relevancy, is, is this specific to you? Um, is it kind of tangential? How accurate yeah. is the information? Um, and you know, how do you know if it's accurate? there are things that you can start to look at. So where's the information coming from? Like who wrote it? Mm-hmm. Do they um, have professional or educational experience to be able to talk? Do they have the authority to talk on this subject? Exactly. Like I can talk about the immune system, but you don't want me to talk about physics or even plumbing, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and we we see it a lot on social media. Is that person who's giving this information, are they respected overall by their peers? I think says a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When you're looking at the the quality of the information, does it come across as fear mongering? Um, yes. Y- yes. You know, that that's always a big one for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they make, you know, really grand, sweeping, dramatic right. statements um, with a website. Go to the about page and start reading. Who is this person? Do, is there a name there? Um, I know that always drives me crazy. I'll, I'll go mm-hmm. to find information. I can't even find are they using a bunch of stock photos and are they selling something? Are they connected to someone who's selling something or, well, you know what I mean? Like, is there anything quote in it for them other than just like altruism of like getting this information out there? Um, are they, like you said, fear, are they confirming a particular ideology or worldview? Are they confirming a bias, right? Like exactly. I, all of these things. Exactly. Um, and then if they, if they're sharing information, that's not consistent with like the overall consensus on a topic, like the, you know, quote unquote expert Mm -hmm. uh, census, like why is it situational? Is it context dependent? Or again, are they, are they trying to sell you fear or a particular ideology? One of the important things I always look for, like people mentioned statistics and everything, but is, is it peer reviewed? Mm -hmm. You know, have other people within that industry kind of taken the time to read over this and be like, you know, Hey, this is really plausible. And this makes a lot of sense. And how are others looking at it and uh, who are experts within that field? How are they receiving that information? And when, you know, you do find something that kind of goes against the consensus, um, 
you know, which I think is really relevant right now. And then, you know, during the pandemic, there's mm-hmm. been a lot of information. And for one, it's important to understand that the very nature of science itself is is kind of following a process of discovery and uh, realizing that that it evolves. Um, yes, you know, scientists. You, we might have been wrong or again, not wrong, but like, again, it's very context or situational. Exactly. Researchers, they're always refining their processes. They're okay. asking better questions that, that lead them down to the next discovery. And if you're um, not in that world or in that field, it can seem very confusing or it is inherently confusing. It's complex. Or you think like, oh, well, you know, they're just changing their mind. I can't trust you. But it's it's like you saying, it's this the method. It's the approach. Exactly. And and so when you're st- when you start seeing those things, um, you have to have a little bit of critical thinking skills. And does it seem remotely plausible? Are there studies that back it up? How big was the study? Did it involve people? Was it um, animal based or was it just a computer model? These are all things that that kind of go into looking at good information, especially something that is kind of bucking the system. How long was the study? How was the study composed? It's all really, really important information to and kind of give you a, a better sense of things. And once again, I'm hoping that you have someone or a community that you can trust if this, you know what I mean, to talk this out or if there's little information on a topic, right? In the case of animal and rare disease, that's all the time. Exactly. So I think that there's a big overlap, especially within the rare disease, you know, NMO MOG community of, okay, if you're finding information that's going against the expert consensus or, you know, the scientific consensus and or, um, you know, there's just really little information or available data on a topic, the importance of being able to find community to talk it out, to extrapolate and really making uh, the best decision with the limited available data with your clinical care team or with that trusted community. So I would be delighted to hear from your expert opinion on, um, you know, as a librarian and in information systems, what to do, right? In that overlap of like information's going against the space or uh, there's just not a lot of information on that topic. Right. Like we had talked about when, you, when you're finding things that that seem to be against the consensus. You've got to start asking questions. And again, going back to the crap test, current, is it actually relevant? Who wrote it? What's their purpose? And, and just asking some some good questions. And uh, the, the other end of that, if there's a lack of information on a topic, you know, what are you supposed to do? And like you said, this is where a lot of us in the in the rare disease community find ourselves. We're just kind of stuck in the middle of the ocean there by ourselves. And um, Chances are that the, there's information out there. It may be proprietary um, and in some some company archive somewhere and just not mm-hmm. act, uh, mm-hmm. open to the public. It may be behind a paywall, which we see a lot of in, in academic libraries can always be very challenging. So there are a few things that you can do when you hit those dead ends. First of all, obviously, always talk to your doctor. They, they should be able to kind of send you on a path to help find some more information. But again, assuming like many of us, we were in situations where we were diagnosed and even our healthcare teams weren't necessarily sure what they were dealing with just mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. of the rarity of, of the disease. My first option would be when you hit those dead ends is, is find a librarian. It's what we deal with. It's what we're trained to do. Public library reference departments can be extremely helpful. They have access to numerous databases that the public may not be able to get into. They have a network of people that they're able to kind of rely on and and help pull information to at least send you on the right path or connect you to the right person 
to help you get to that information, whether it's through specific databases or connecting you with um, some resources through like interlibrary loan or some of the, the larger um, databases it can be intimidating um, trying to get in there. Um, and and a librarian can kind of help you go in there and pull that information out. And, and a lot of them will be honestly invested in finding the information almost as much as you are, uh, because they usually really love to help people and they hate to fail. So a lot of the librarians mm. uh, in reference to parents, they really take it personally when they're having a hard time finding the information that they're looking for. Most hospitals do have librarians on staff, so that might be an option, being able to to talk to them. In many states, uh, there are things that are called libraries of last resort. Here in Pennsylvania, we have a couple of universities and institutions that we can rely on as citizens to help locate difficult to find resources. And it's just a matter of working through the different resources, starting with your local public library. Another option is to look for organizations like NORD, uh, the National Organization of Rare Diseases, mm -hmm. nominal databases. You can go into the um, the page on NMO and it'll tell you the different foundations that are out there. They'll have links to and citations for where they pull their information, the studies, like the, the seminal studies and research papers on the disease. Look for organizations like the Samira Foundation. Um, these are organizations that are focused on one very specific thing, and they usually have a lot of resources and can mm -hmm. help you make those connections. And the last thing, and I say this with so much caution, but you mm -hmm. can use social media effectively and to your advantage to find good information, specifically trying to find your tribe and start talking to them and see what resources they use to learn about a disease or what resources they're using to give them an idea on how to make better decisions based mm -hmm. upon their illness. And even Wikipedia, um, you know, it's a good place to start. Exactly. A lot of librarian librarians will cringe when I say this, but Wikipedia can be a great starting point. It, it'll kind of give you that um, basic foundation knowledge on a topic maybe give you some some keywords and help you understand a little bit of the jargon related to that topic so you can start to build a better search to find the information and even like when you scroll down to the bottom of the page you see the um the reference section and you can start going through those links on a good wikipedia page those are going to be going to like national library of medicine they're going to be going to the mayo clinic or these other institutions that have very good reputations and are putting out solid information. So that starts to give you your own personal library of resources where you can start to learn about illnesses and medications. You can start using that to, to begin to make good healthcare decisions. Well, thank you so much, Brian. I really loved talking about this with you. Um, I'm very passionate on this topic. Again, as we emphasize the why, the intersection of both of our like professional backgrounds with our personal experiences navigating a rare disease, um, in your case for yourself or in my case for my loved ones. Um, so thank you so much. Again, just to reiterate and summarize. So we talked about health literacy and what that is. So the ability of individuals to find process and apply information and services to make the informed health related decisions um, and actions for themselves or their loved ones. Um, we talked, I think, the obvious of how just intuitively important this is. Again, we're talking about 
our health, our loved one's health, how we can apply this information to our collective health. Um, the role of trust in people or institutions who are providing this information and how to discern quality information from misinformation, um, as you emphasize, going on the internet or social media and you know, how can we trust or find good quality sources of information? So just high level overview of um, key points you emphasize, you know, making sure those uh, institutions, sites, people, they, they have a professional educational experience in the topic that they're claiming to have authority in. Are they respected by their peers? You know, reviewing if they have any major conflicts of interest. Um, is what they're sharing consistent with the scientific consensus? Um, are they selling fear? Um, you know, keeping all of these different uh, situational uh, factors in mind. Um, so, and you provided a slew of ideas or um, sources to go to in general, um, you know, to find good quality information. Um, like you mentioned, your library systems, patient advocacy organizations, um, verified clinicians. So thank you. Thank you so much. I think that this you know, will be very helpful for people. And I think that we could go down a lot of other rabbit holes in the future, um, a lot of the tangents that, um, you know, we hit upon. So thank you so much, Brian. Thank you for having me. It was great.